Word of our Lord from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And so Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And so Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. So Philip said to him, Lord, just show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. So Jesus said to him, have I not... Uh, been with you for so long or have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me Philip he who has seen me has seen the father so how can you say show us the father do you not believe that I am in the father and the father in me the words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority but the father who dwells in me does the works believe me that I am in the father and the father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Tom, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live And at that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And so Jesus said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. We pray that you would lead and guide us through your spirit as we um, think on these things. We pray that you would help us. And we pray that you would um, bless the reading of your word. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. In his um, letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, C.S. Lewis said, The prayer preceding all prayers is, May it be the real I who speaks. May it be the real thou that I speak to. This being Trinity Sunday, it um, the questions raised in my mind, and perhaps might be raised in your mind. Why does theology matter? 
Trinity is obviously a very uh, theological term. Um, you don't find that word in the Holy Scriptures. And so, you know, the question is, where does it come from? Why does it matter? Why does theology itself matter? And my answer is really quite simple, because who God is matters. Um, theology is, is not just some academic term. It, it's actually based on two Greek, uh, Greek words, theos, meaning God, and laga, lago, lagia, which is based on lagos, which means word. And so theology is really, it's words about God. It's ideas about God. And because that's what theology is, because that's the nature of theology, it's, it's, it's words that we have about God, ideas that we have about him, what we think about him, what we say about him, um, our assumptions, our beliefs. Because that's what theology is, everyone is in fact a theologian. Everyone. The question is not whether or not you'll be a theologian, but rather whether you'll be a good theologian or a bad one. Everyone has ideas about God. Even the atheist has ideas about God, namely that he is not, that there is no God, that there is no one beyond the natural world, that there, there is no, no, no person, no thing, no higher power that has caused what is what is is simply the product of random chance and millions upon millions, perhaps billions of years and time that has passed. But everyone has an idea about God, that he is, that he isn't, what he's like, whether or not there are many gods, whether or not he's in the natural order, whether or not God inhabits the trees, whether or not the trees themselves are God. Everyone is a theologian because we all have ideas about God. Add to that the, the, the reality that ideas have consequences, and suddenly those ideas that we have about God are quite consequential. They're, they're important. They do matter. Um, ideas have consequences. Think about that for, for a moment. Bad ideas have bad consequences, and good ideas have good consequences. If if the, if the idea that, or if I have the idea that I am the most important thing in the world, that the world is my oyster, that I am the center, that I'm the most important thing, that I am numero uno, number one, and everything else then can serve for my pleasures, that's a bad idea, and the consequences of that is the way I affect other people, the way I harm others, the way I'm willing to run people over, the way I'm willing to use others or misuse others, the way I, I'm, I, I am able to, uh, uh, to mistreat people, or steal from others, because, well, my needs are more important than your needs. That's a bad idea that leads to bad consequences, and good ideas lead to good consequences. If as the scriptures tell us, the most important thing in life is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if, as Jesus and John the Apostle said, you cannot have one without the other. You can't really love God rightly and not love your neighbor. And you can't really love your neighbor rightly without love for God. If that idea is true, then the consequences are exponential. The way I interact with my neighbor, the way I treat even my enemies, as Jesus said, has major consequences because 
it directly reflects upon my relationship with God. God's anger in the Old Testament, Yahweh's frustration with Israel was was how they mistreated one another. It wasn't that they broke rules. It's they ran one another over. They neglected each other. And it was because of that that Yahweh said, you have profaned my name to the nations, the nations all around you to whom you're supposed to be lights. To be lights, I've given Israel to be a light unto the Gentiles. Those Gentiles think that I'm no better than their gods. Oh, he's self-seeking just like our gods are. He's no different. And so ideas have consequences. Words communicate ideas, and therefore words matter. They have meaning. They communicate ideas. They, they, they express things. Words are like names that we give. When we say a word, we think of an object. When I say Andrew, I immediately think of his face. Um, when, when, when I say Varese, I think of Varese, and I think of, of memories that I have that are related to her. This morning we were talking about dogs and whatnot. There, when, when we say words, we are communicating ideas. And therefore, doctrine matters. Doctrine has to do with teaching. You know, theology and doctrine both are words that have have come to, they're they're almost like taboo terms in church circles now. Nobody wants to talk theology. Nobody wants to talk doctrine. And it's possible to talk theology and to talk doctrine in a very boring and monotonous and mundane way that isn't life-producing. But it is possible to talk theology. After all, we're talking about God. And, and to talk doctrine, which is Christian teaching, in a way that is life-infusing and life-giving. Doctrine does matter because doctrine is about what is being taught. It's not a bad word. It's a perfectly normal word, in fact, to use if we care about the ideas that we hold and how they are communicated or shared. That's what all of the New Testament is about. And I'm not, se- I'm not segmenting the New Testament from the Old Testament but when we, when we think of the New Testament, think about how it's even laid out. You've got the four Gospels, and then you've got the book of Acts, which is a kind of a, a, part, a part two of Luke's Gospel. So when Luke ends, he, he, he carries on his story through the book of Acts as Jesus uh, visits with his disciples and then ascends to the Father's right hand. Pentecost comes as they're tarrying in Jerusalem, as Jesus had instructed. And then you've got that story of of the early church as the gospel is breaking out upon the world. And it's literally said by some of the pagan city officials that these disciples have turned the world upside down and now they've come to our town. The implication being like, what's going to happen now to our power and our structures of power? And so... So you've got the Gospels, then you have Acts, and then what do you have? You have a series of letters. You've got the Pauline letters, and then you've got the general letters. We call them epistles. Um, And what they're doing is they're reflecting back upon the story of Jesus. If this is what Jesus has done, if Christ was indeed God, the eternal God, and he came and he dwelt among us, and if he lived a sinless life among us and he drew disciples to himself and he suffered for us and died upon a cross and if the resurrection has really happened if Christ has been raised now what? What are the implications of those big ideas those good ideas that that gospel the good news what are the implications of that on our life? And so most of the epistles in the New Testament are actually laid out 
where the the first half of them are so, or so is uh, that's within each letter. So the book of Romans, the first bit is about theology, and then the second bit is about, okay, well, how do we live now? If God has reconciled us in Christ, how do we live? How does it change our lives? And so the majority of the New Testament is actually a series of letters, letters to pastors, letters to churches, letters to individuals, letters to collections of churches like the book of uh, Galatians, um, letters to God's people, reminding them of what God has done in Christ to reconcile them and how the Spirit is at work in their lives and what He's wanting to do and what it looks like to live a life that is given over to Jesus. What they're doing is they're developing doctrine. They're writing theology. They're talking about the work of God, who God is, what He's done in their behalf, and how then their lives ought to be transformed. Um, I've given you some passages of Scripture to look up in your own time there, but consider Jesus' words concerning doctrine specifically. Consider the early church, that the early church, it tells us in the book of Acts, began to grow and multiply, thousands being brought to Christ in a single day, multiple times, and, and people being added to the church daily, the, uh, Luke tells us. And what are they doing? They gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That's one of the important ingredients to what's going on in the early church. The propagation of of doctrine. Consider Paul, he says extensive amounts about specifically using that word doctrine and the importance of it throughout Romans, in Ephesians, all of 1 Timothy. The the word doctrine or teaching comes up all throughout almost every chapter. He's he's harping on it. And then especially in in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But then consider also John because it's not just a Pauline thing. It's also John through all of, of, uh, of John's first epistle is about Christian doctrine. It's about what we believe about God. Um, who he is, what he's done, and how that affects us. All of Jude is actually written as a warning against false doctrine. And so, please, take the time this afternoon, this week, to look up those passages and, and let those... Uh, simmer in your mind this week and think about uh, the importance that the New Testament places upon right doctrine, right teaching, and our theology, our ideas about who God is. So Christian theology begins with the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, It's not merely a doctrine in a list of doctrines. It's actually the starting point or the wellspring from which all other sound doctrine flows. It's not just one in a list. It is actually the first thing we say about who God is. Who is He? He is triune. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. He's revealed Himself as, as, as the Father. He's revealed Himself in His incarnate Son, who the Scriptures tell us is eternal and is one with Him. And He reveals Himself through His Holy Spirit. Uh, John Wesley said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I'll show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. The point being that the doctrine of the Trinity is, it is cloaked in, in mystery. It's something that we can't fully get our heads around. But as C.S. Lewis said, Tom, who wants a God that you can fit into your head? That's not a God that can save, really. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is kind of mind-blowing, but God is mind-blowing. 
one of the mind, most mind-blowing things I remember about um, uh, theology as a kid, um, kids are always thinking through, kids that, kids that go to church, they're always thinking through, how does all this work? What does all this mean? How does that all work out? Uh, I know it because I've seen it in my own kids, but also I know it because I was there myself. I remember trying to understand how in the world God could be eternal. Because I don't know anything that's eternal. I don't know anything that has no beginning. I know someone. But God is in a category all to himself. That's why we say that God is one. He's not a, he's not a multiplicity. There is one God. There is only one being uncreated. There is only one who spoke time into existence. Let there be light. And so it's hard to get your head around how that is. What was before God? It's a, it's a nonsensical question. There was nothing before God. Strictly speaking, there is no before and after with him. He is eternal. He is, he is not time bound. Yes, he enters into time, especially in his son Jesus, and especially in his interaction with, uh, with Israel, and in his interaction in the church, in the life of the church. But, but to try to get your head around who God is, is something that the, the human mind simply cannot do. Um, John uses language in his epistles that, you know, we don't know what we shall become. In other words, when we get to glory, we don't know what all that's going to be like. But we do know that we will be changed. We will be made like him, for we will see him as he is. Paul says, we will finally know as we are known. God knows us intimately and fully, and we don't quite know him. We, we don't know him anywhere near fully. He calls us to know Him intimately. He calls us into relationship with Him. He tells us some things about Himself. That's what Revelation, not the book of the Revelation, but the whole book of Revelation, God's revealing of Himself through Scripture, that's what it's all about. It's God disclosing Himself. God pulling back the curtain a bit. God showing us what He's like. And He does that not by, not, not by dumping a theology textbook on us, even this book itself wasn't just produced and printed one day and handed to, to Abraham. Here, learn about me and follow me. He invites people into relationship. Think about Abraham. God did not give him the law. The law was hundreds of years later. God gave him a proposal. If you'll pack your bags and leave everything that you find stable and comforting, and safe in life. If you'll risk one for me, I'll make you famous. Always reminds me of that, of that last line from uh, Young Guns 2. Billy the Kid, yoo-hoo, I'll make you famous. Um, that's God's offer, his proposal to Abraham. It, Abram, at that time, is, if you'll leave everything, I will give you a baby boy so that your name can go on, which is completely ludicrous in, in Abram's mind at that time. He's, he ought to be dead by our, by our ages. Um, I'll give you land, and I'll give you a name that no one will ever forget. If you'll trust me, if you'll come to me, if you'll follow me. You don't even know where you're going, but will you trust me? Will you enter into a relationship with me? Will you go where I'm leading you? Um, when we think about um, 
um, when we think about theology, notice that C.S. Lewis talked about, and this is the, what the third time I've referenced him. I, I promise I'm not preaching C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis said that theology is it's like a map. It's not the same as going somewhere. It's it's a picture of what the lay of the land looks like, but it's not actually being there itself. You can have a, a, a map of the city of Atlanta and have never been to Atlanta. I've seen maps of Rome. I've seen maps of, of the English countryside. I've seen maps of Canada. I've seen maps of Antarctica. And I've never been to any of those places. I've seen maps of New York. I've never been to New York. I've seen, Lindsay's seen maps of Texas, and she's never been to Texas. I was stunned to hear that she'd never been to Texas. It's like the biggest thing there is, right? Um, and, uh, but to look at a map is not the same as going to a place. And so theology does not mean we know God, but it does mean that we can know something about him. The primary focus that God has, his primary concern is that we know him, not just know things about him. But as any of us who's ever been in a relationship, and every last one of us, even the little baby girls, have been in a relationship, they kiss one another to, to comfort each other when they're crying and whatnot. We all know what relationships are like because we've been there. It is one thing to know something about someone. It is something wholly different to know the person. But to know the person doesn't mean knowing things about them is silly or stupid or pointless or not worthwhile. Any husband or wife, any best friend, any, any owner and dog that, that have been together for years and don't know the, the first thing about one another would say, You're, do you really not even care about me? You don't, know any, you don't know what my favorite color is? You don't know what the color of my eyes are? Now you're probably wondering, what are the colors of his eyes? And you can't see them because my eye sockets are all shadowy and whatnot. Um, I'm going to purposefully squint now uh, just so that you can't see the color of my eyes. Um, so when we think about Christian theology, like I said, the, the starting point is the doctrine of the Trinity because the Trinity speaks to who God is in himself, not who he is in relationship to creation. As Dennis Kinlaw so well put it, before God is Lord, He is Father. Because Lord means I, I am sovereign over something. And so before God speaks creation into existence over which He can be sovereign, over which He can be a Lord, there is one who cries out in the heart of eternity, Abba, Father. And so Trinity speaks to the heart of who God is, really. And what do we mean by Trinity? I've, I've put the shield of the Trinity up here on the screen. It's also on that, that back page of your handout. When we speak of Trinity, there are really a couple of approaches that you can have, um, uh, a couple of basic approaches you can have. The Western way of thinking about it is that there is one God, three persons. The Eastern way, which kind of goes the other way around, is that there are three persons, one God. Um... That, that term, Trinity, it's, it's based upon two word parts or two word roots, tri meaning three and unity meaning one. And so it, it, it really is a, a three-in-one uh, term that's smashed together. The Articles of Religion of Methodism that, that were established uh, for the American Methodists by John Wesley, founder of Methodism, begins with Article One. Like I said, the very first thing that the church believes about who God is is this. 
on faith in the Holy Trinity, there is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body or parts. In other words, he's immaterial. He's not creation. He's not part of creation because he made creation. He didn't make himself. Without body or parts of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. In other words, his, he, is, he is unlimited in, in, in power, in wisdom or knowledge, and in goodness. The maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. Things we can see, things we can't see. Whether uh, some of the creeds will say in heaven and on earth, even under the earth, as Paul does in his epistles. Whether it's visible or invisible, whatever it is. Angels, trees, uh, human beings, fish in the sea, things out in outer space, black holes. Whatever it is, visible or invisible, God has made it. And in unity of this Godhead, there are three persons. One of substance, power, and eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we do not worship three separate gods. We worship one God who is, throughout eternity, three persons. Uh, some helpful images that the church, is, that the church has used uh, over the centuries. That word perichoresis. Anybody know what if you if you've gotten a degree from any institution that has the word Wesley in it, don't answer. Anybody know what perichoresis means? Is there anything that brings to your mind? What's choreography? Dance moves. Dance moves. There you go. Choreograph. Uh, to, 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 to dance, to design a dance. Perichoresis is 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 a uh, a Latin image of dancing together or dancing around and that was actually one of the images that the early church used to help help themselves uh to help get their mind around who god is three persons father son and spirit who are moving together not doing their own thing not not doing whatever they want but who are in in sync with one another not the band who are in concert together who are who are moving together they act together. They, they will together. Jesus even says, the words I'm speaking to you, they're not my words. I'm simply telling you what the Father says. He says, the works that I do, I'm not doing them. The Father is doing them through me. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, this, this, uh, this movement, this shared movement together, working together in concert, is so much so that that there's a life of interpenetration is one of the, the technical terms that the theologians use where, um, where Jesus says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father and you are in me and we are in you. It's the same sort of language that he uses when he talks about the Holy Spirit. I am going away from you to the Father and I'm going to pray to the Father Interesting side note, prayer in Greek is related to the word for face. Um, So I'm going to pray to the Father, and he is going to send you another helper, another comforter, or another another paraclete, one who comes alongside you for the journey. And that spirit is going to come to you, and we... Me and my Father are going to make our home with you through the Holy Spirit. So you've got this interpenetrating language um, 
skip that mutual deference. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, this interpenetration of reciprocity, of, of, of breathing in and breathing out, of, of exchanging life and love with one another that's going on in the, in the life of the Trinity. A self-givingness where the Father is always, uh, is always looking to the Son whom He beloves, and the Son is always looking to the Father uh, from whom Jesus even says, I, I receive my life, not from myself, but from my Father. And, and in that love relationship, the Holy Spirit is, is he's not brought in, the Holy Spirit experiences that love as well, the love of the Father and the Son. And so you've got this mutual self-givingness. Yes, I'm losing you. The paraclete. The paraclete. Uh, it, it is it is one who comes alongside. Is that like when we go home, or when is that? No, that's that's what happened at Pentecost last week. The Holy Spirit came. Jesus referred to him as the Paraclete. It's a Greek word that means a, uh, one who comes alongside. And so, some translations will translate it a comforter. Some will say a helper because it's someone who comes alongside you to go the journey with you. So he helps you. He comforts you. His presence is there with you. Yes, the here and the now. So when we speak about Jesus being in our hearts, what we're, what we're technically saying is that His Holy Spirit lives in us, and, the Holy, and the, we don't get the Holy Spirit without Jesus. And we don't get Jesus without the Father. And we don't get the Father without Jesus. We don't get the Father without the Spirit. Um, Jesus Himself says, if you reject me, you're rejecting my Father. You can't get the Father and not me. We come together. Um, it's like tacos and indigestion. You can't have one without the other. I mean, you could probably have indigestion without tacos if you ate chili or something. But, um, and so the, it's it's that uh, that like I said, interpenetrating life, shared life, where there is no father. That's that's what uh, that's what the shield of the Trinity helps us to understand. There are actually twelve doctrinal statements in this one little round image. Uh, that the early church used. It, it dates back at least several hundred years, so it wasn't the early, early, early church. But uh, it's Latin, P for, for patre or padre for father. You got uh, the, the son over here and the spiritus sanctus, the Holy Spirit over there. And notice Deus is God in the center. Est means is and non-est means is not. And so God is the father God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. Neither is the Father the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit the Father. And the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. So you've got all of these doctrinal statements tied up in one thing. Again, mystery. We don't know anything that's like this. But that's the only way to make sense of what Jesus, of how Jesus speaks about his relationship to the Father and his relationship to the Holy Spirit. They are not separate. They come together. They work together. Even Paul's theology of salvation in his epistles, he's always talking about what the Father has done in the Son by the Spirit. He's always talking about how the Spirit is at work in us, bringing, conforming us to the image of Christ, which is the will of the Father. 
So salvation, how God reveals himself, um, what God has done in Christ, it's not what, what, what is happening in the life of Christ is not separate from what's from the, from the Father, and it's not separate from the work of the Spirit. The Son is, 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 um, is submitting to the will of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you've got this, again, interpenetrating life. Um, if you think of mutual deference, it's, it's the, the idea of washing your hands. You know, which hand is washing which? Have you ever thought about that? Next time you wash your hands, it's going to drive you nuts. Wait a minute, which <laughs> hand is washing the other one? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, there, there's no answer. It's, it's, it's a mystery. It's this one's washing that one as that one's washing this one. That's, that's the type of, of life and love, shared life and shared love that Jesus is talking about in relationship to the Father, his relationship to the Father and the Spirit. In fact, he says the Spirit, that other comforter is going to come, and he's going to bring the presence of the Father and me to you, and you're going to be in us, and we're going to be in you. And the Spirit's work is to draw back to your mind what I've told you. So the Spirit is pointing to the Son, and the Son is always deferring to the Father. I'm not doing my thing. I'm not teaching you my doctrine. I'm telling you what the Father tells me. I'm not doing my own works. I'm simply doing what the Father does through me by the Spirit. Um, there are obviously some dangerous tendencies. Sometimes as when we talk about the Trinity, it starts sounding like we're talking about three separate gods, and that's not, where, that's not what the church believes. Anathema, the early church would have said. Um, cursed be that doctrine. Uh, sometimes people think, talk about the, the Trinity as some third element, like you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then you've got the Trinity, like it's, it's, the Trinity is a club or something. Um, uh, some, sometimes uh, Christians speak of Jesus as less than God, and that often happens when you talk about God and Jesus. Well, Jesus is God, and so we could talk about the Father and the Son and the Spirit, uh, but dare we never speak of Jesus as less than God. He is fully God, though he's fully man. Um, it's possible, and this, this often happens, is when we talk about the life of the Trinity, we, we, we turn the, uh, uh, the shield so that the primary emphasis is not the Father, but instead is the Father-Son relationship, and the, the Spirit ends up just being kind of like the bond of love. That's how uh, St. Augustine in the early church talked about the Spirit. He was the bond of love, which is kind of depersonifying and, and objectifying, uh, in my mind, of the Spirit. The Spirit is, is equal, the creeds tell us, He is equal in Godhead to the Father and the Son. He is just as much God as the Son is. He is eternal, just as the Son is, and the creeds tell us, and He is to be worshipped, just as the Father and the Son are. Um... Before we move on, any any questions or anything I need to clarify? Can you start at the beginning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you'll look back, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> um, so I, I, again, this is there, there is there is a paragraph I skipped over, but you can read that in in your own time about orthodoxy and heresy. Don't be afraid of the mystery. When, uh, when you get into theology. There are some questions we cannot answer, and that's okay. 
It's, it's good for any teacher, any professor, any pastor, any parent to, to have the, 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 the fortitude to say, you know, I don't know. I don't know completely. Um, there's, God did not give us a theology textbook. He didn't give us a systematic theology, and even if he did, there's probably more that could be said. He gave us a revelation. He showed himself to us. He invites us into relationship. Yes, Jeremy. None of this came from him at all. Yes. Um, so begotten son to me, and again, I should probably know this, begotten son means to me that he came from the Father. So Jesus as an eternal being, can you just kind of explain that? I know I'm kind of rabbit Yeah, it, you're right. Begotten, it, to, to, be, to beget something, <coughs> C.S. Lewis again, uh, uh, said to beget something is different than to make something. I can make a statue. God can create the world. He does not beget it. He be, the begottenness means to be of the same likeness, to come from the genes of. It, 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 it's actually a genetic term. And so you beget a child, and that child shares the DNA or the information of the parents. He is of the same, of the same breed, of the same makeup, of the same... Uh, uh, the same substance uh, it's always weird talking about substance with God because he's, in, he's, he's not matter um, and so when John talks about the son as being the only begotten of the father he is the he, yeah he is the only he is the only eternal son he is the only one who is son of the father by, by nature rather than by adoption um, it's, it's kind of a teasing out of, of John's prologue. Well, a, not just a teasing out, but it's because he says even more about it in the prologue than he does in that single verse. But in that single verse, when he uses that only begotten language, it's kind of a, a flashback to what he said about the son in his prologue. Those, you remember those first 18 verses of John's gospel? He says, in the beginning was the word, logos, um, which it, there's, there's a whole history behind why he refers to the Son as the Word. We won't get into that now unless you all really want to. Um, but in the beginning was the Word, the expression, and, and the Word was with God, which speaks to the Word. There is God and there is the Word. He's with Him, but the Word is, all, but the word is God. So the first deals with person, the Word is not the Father. Um, and the second deals with essence or, or nature. But He is one with. He is God. He is in the same category as the Father is. He was in the beginning with God. And notice what He says about creation. All things were made through Him. And without Him, that is all things. So He's not a part of the created order. He, he creates all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. John doesn't say that the word was made. It says the word became flesh. He assumed our, our flesh and dwelt among us. But he speaks of Jesus, the word, as not made or created, but as begotten. 
for all of eternity, but for he's always been with the Father, begotten of the Father. Yes? I thought I saw somewhere that talking about that word mm-hmm. that it really refers to preeminent one. It, the preeminent one. Okay. Not the created one, but you know, the preeminent. Yeah, it, the preeminence is, is language that the Hebrews writer uses, uh, especially those first couple of chapters when he talks about the preeminence of the Son and how he is over all things. And it's also the language that Paul uses in, uh, in Ephesians and in Colossians, I know, probably elsewhere, where he talks about how because, because of the Son's perfect submission to the will of the Father, simply wanting to do what the Father desires, because of that, God has given him the name above all names. He's put him over the church, and he is Lord over heaven and earth. And the scriptures tell us that when we get to eternity, the Son will, as Lord of all things, will pull all things together and give them as an offering to his Father. Um, but yeah, preeminence. That's a, that's a, 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 good, a good word and a good image, and it's a, a completely biblical word when talking about Jesus. Things uh, I was remembering as you were talking uh, in Isaiah, put this down. Uh, Isaiah forty twenty two states, "He God, sits above the surface of the earth." Now, the is, is Isaiah way back in seven hundred sixty BC on astronomy? <laughs> I didn't know all that. Yeah. Know? And so this is act he's stating. And so I, I did wonder, though, if that word he sits above the circle of the earth is maybe referring to uh, like Proverbs 8.27, which talks about setting the boundaries of the earth. You know? but nevertheless, the circle, I mean, you know, I don't, did Columbus figure out the circle? He figured out it was a circle way before yeah. 70 B.C. So, and then the, the comments in my Wesley Bible there says, uh, God is too great to be captured in any hmm. uh, craftsman's handiwork. <clears throat> if he could be adequately um, portrayed in that way, he would not be worthy of worship. Yeah, and speaking to Isaiah and Proverbs, um, I don't think their intent is to try to explain cosmology the shape of the earth and that sort of thing um, and the relationship of the earth to the other planets and the stars and whatnot. I, but they're, they're certainly speaking to the preeminence of Christ. They're speaking to the fact that God is sovereign over all of creation. Um, and typically in the Old Testament, well, in, in the, throughout the Bible, when, when they refer to earth, they're not specifically only meaning the third planet from the sun in our solar system. They're actually speaking to the, the, the habitation of creatures, the habitation of humanity. Heaven is where God dwells, and earth is where humanity dwells. Um, and so they're, they're certainly speaking of how God is sovereign over all. He transcends all because he's not a part of the created order. He's outside of it. Does that make sense? One more comment, and I'll shut up. I'm glad you're doing this because uh, it helps me, but it helps all of us because there's, it's like David read before the service uh, about 
the dilution of God's word in effect. Mm-hmm. To man dilutes the word to suit his own need rather than goes to God's word and tries to be like what God wants to be like. So man wants God to be like. He wants mm-hmm. to live, you know. But I was just thinking that there's so much stuff on television on the false doctrine mm-hmm. that they're seeking with clothing like mm-hmm. T.E.J. and the Potter's House, he sounds real good and Kent and Gloria Copeland, all those, uh, all those false teachers, and what you're talking to us about helps us understand when we listen to that. that they're preaching, they're preaching a different Jesus. Yeah, a different Jesus. They say, follow Jesus, and you'll be saved. But you have to wonder which Jesus do they want you to follow? One of them, the one, the one you, they want you to follow, you won't be saved. Yeah, and uh, like. Like uh, the Potter's house, you know, he, he has believed that uh, God manifests Himself in three ways. You know, like yeah. they try to tear it apart. So anyway, I think it's good well, for all and, of us to try to. And and that's the thing. That's I mean, that's the really the the conundrum of theology. If I could coin a phrase, is that. The purpose of theology is to talk about God and to help people better understand Him, to better understand what He's like. But the but the uh, the conundrum comes in that you can't fully do that, and that's what that's what the um, that's what the the lie of heresy has always been. That oh well we'll we'll make this we'll make this perfectly understandable, perfectly simple. It'll all make sense when you read whether it's Arius or or. You know, in, especially Arius, uh, Marcion. Even what they're trying to do is make things easier. They're trying to, and so what they're doing is they're actually shortcutting the mystery because we want to get around that. We want to get completely around the veil and 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 tell you exactly how it makes sense that Jesus is eternal. It, or not, because typically they'll say, well, yeah, he's technically not eternal. He was created. He was the first part of creation. And so the temptation of heresy is to is to skip the mystery and say, no, all the questions can be answered, and here are the answers, and they're very easy for you. And so most of the heretics throughout church history, and most of them that are on TV today, they're very charismatic. And I don't mean that in the way of, like, in the way of like God's spirit moving, but I mean they're likable, they're nice, they're well dressed, they're well versed, they talk well. That's why when, like, I'm always like, hey, wait a minute, when folks say that, ah, oh, you put that so well, it's like, okay, well, I won't put it so well that I like end up in that category. <laughs> but um, but the heretics throughout church history have always been very winsome in their ability to communicate to people and develop big followings to say hey look this, god's at work here because look at look at look at the effects but the problem is and the why and why faithfulness to christian theology faithfulness to the scriptures as they are is so important is we don't want to point people to a different jesus what paul says in galatians is if if you're hearing a gospel that's not this gospel it, it, it's a false gospel, and it's not a gospel. There's nothing saving in it unless it's the God who has actually saved us in the Jesus that he's actually sent. And that Jesus invites us, like David said, and like you were just alluding to, that Jesus invites us to a cross. He doesn't invite us to comfort. He doesn't invite us to a life of ease. He doesn't invite us to, to wealth and health and never having a, a, a stub toe. He, he invites us to a cross um 
and we'll we'll end we'll end here. It's this it's this nature of God, this this love, uh, this way of who God is that brings that that, that brings about creation. It's it's out of that love that God does create us. Notice how they how uh, how the Father words it. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Um, and it's and it's out of this love that redemption comes. The atonement of Jesus is not about the Father pouring out all of His wrath and anger upon a, an innocent Son so that He so that, so that He can be appeased and calmed down and not annihilate the rest of us. The the the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are are willfully redeeming us. In the atonement, um, notice Jesus' prayer in John chapter seventeen. He said, "This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, myself, whom you have sent." Eternal life is to know God, to know the one true God, the triune God, and so the doctrine of Trinity shapes. Our understanding of the nature of God, it, it shapes our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of others and how we ought to relate to them. It, it has implications for the world around us, morality, ethics. It touches really all of life. It shapes our understanding of what really, what, what really is going on in sin. What is the nature of sin? And it's completely contrary to the nature of God. Nature of God is giving and self-giving and surrender, not grasping and grabbing, which is what the nature of sin is. Um, and it it affects our understanding of the atonement, the church, everything really. Um, it's the most foundational understanding we have that God is holy, self-giving love. Uh, it's not just something He does; it's who He is in His very essence. And it's that God that we are invited into relationship with. It's that God that we're invited to pray to, that we're invited to worship, that we're invited to share with others. Really, our understanding of the Trinity ought to affect our spiritual disciplines and how we relate to God. It ought to affect how we pray. It ought to affect how we worship. It ought to affect how we even share our faith with others and how we see others um, because we see them not as not as a means to our end, not as cogs in the wheel, not as people that we can use or exploit, but we see them as people who are the objects of God's infinite love that He made to know Him and that, that, that whose lives and brokenness can only be put back together in relationship with Him. And that's good news. That's good news that presupposes the bad news of sin, but that's good news that actually is transforming because it actually connects us to who God is, not just, not just a teaching point about Him. Let's pray and then we'll sing one last hymn or one last song.